So lately, I've been thinking an enormous amount about a puzzle concerning how empathy works. But before describing it, I should make sure that we're on the same page about what empathy is. To me, empathy is a useful umbrella term that captures at least three distinct but related processes through which one person responds to another person's emotions. So let's say that I run into you and you are highly distressed. A bunch of things might happen to me. One, I might catch your emotion and vicariously take on the same state that I see in you. That's what I would call experience sharing. Two, I might think about how you feel and why you feel the way you do. And that type of explicit consideration of the world as someone else sees it is what I would call mentalizing. And three, I might develop some concern for your state and I might feel motivated to help you feel better. That is what people these days call compassion, also often known as empathic concern. It often seems like these processes, sharing someone's emotions, thinking about their emotions, and wanting to improve their emotional state should always go together. But in fact, they split apart in all sorts of really interesting ways. So for instance, people with psychopathy oftentimes are perfectly able to understand what you feel, but they feel no concern for your emotions and thus they can leverage their understanding to manipulate and even harm you. So I spent several years early in my career thinking about these emotional and empathic processes and how they interact with each other. But in the last couple of years, I've zoomed out. I've stopped thinking as much about the pieces that make up empathy and started thinking about why and when people empathize in the first place. And this is where the puzzle comes in. Because there are two different narratives that you might hear about how empathy works. They're both really compelling and very well supported and they're pretty much entirely contradictory with each other, at least at first blush. So the first narrative here is that empathy is automatic. And this goes all the way back to Adam Smith, who to me generated the first modern account of empathy in his beautiful book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So Smith described what he called the fellow feeling through which people take on each other's states, very similar to what I would call experience sharing. His most famous example of this is a crowd watching a tightrope walker. And he said that this crowd, without being able to help it, would become nervous watching this person wobble over a precipice and their palms would start to sweat and they'd kind of balance and move their own bodies as though they were trying to survive a tightrope, even though they were on relatively solid ground. Smith was adamant that this was something that people could not control. It just happened to them. And I think that view dominates current theory about empathy. And not without reason. I mean, I think that certainly jibes with our intuition that we can't control our feeling of empathy. Like, if I were to ask you to imagine watching someone suffer a horrendous sports injury, you probably don't think, well, I'd figure out how much empathy I want to feel in this moment. You probably feel as though a wave of discomfort and empathy would just wash over you. And there's lots of evidence that that indeed is what happens. For instance, people take on each other's facial expressions within a fraction of a second of seeing someone else pose an expression. And even if they're not aware that they're doing it, uh, these, this type of imitation happens quite early in development. So babies in the first weeks of their lives will cry when they hear another infant crying. And it's probably evolutionarily old as well. So 
mice who we probably don't think have the same cognitive firepower that we do, nonetheless appear to take on each other's states. My lab has been interested in another kind of signature of empathy, which is what we call neural resonance. This is the idea, something that you can capture using uh, techniques like fMRI, that when I see you experience some state, say make a movement or feel pain or exhibit some emotion, my brain generates a pattern of activity consistent with what you're experiencing, not with what I'm experiencing. It's as though my brain rehearses your experience for me so that I can understand it implicitly. We and lots of other folks have demonstrated that this happens even absent any instruction to empathize and even when you distract people. This suggests, again, that even this sort of neural signature of empathy might be occurring outside of our awareness or control. So that's one narrative, that empathy is totally automatic. And again, compelling, backed by lots of evidence. But if you believe that empathy always occurs automatically, you run into a freight train of evidence to the contrary. Because as many of us know, there are lots and lots of instances in which people could feel empathy, but don't. The kind of prototype case here is intergroup settings. So people who are divided by a war or a political issue or even a sports rivalry often uh, experience a collapse of their empathy. In many cases, these folks feel apathy for, for others on the other side of a group boundary. So they fail to share or think about or feel concerned for those other people's emotions. In other cases, it gets even worse and people feel over antipathy towards others. For instance, taking pleasure when some misfortune befalls someone on the other side of a group boundary. What's interesting to me is that this occurs not even only for group boundaries that are meaningful, like, say, ethnicity or religion, but even totally arbitrary groups, such that if I were to divide us into a red and blue team without that taking on any more significance, you would be more likely to experience empathy for fellow red team members than for me, if apparently I'm on team blue today. Um, and another interesting feature of this sort of group boundedness of empathy is that it doesn't just affect the amount of empathy we feel, it also appears to affect whether we feel empathy automatically or not. So people have used EEG, for instance, to demonstrate that uh, folks exhibit less neural resonance for the pain of out-group as compared to in-group members and that difference happens within 200 milliseconds. So it's not that you experience automatic empathy and tamp it down if you're in an intergroup setting. It feels like in those settings, empathy doesn't occur at all in the first place. So you've got these two narratives. On the one hand, empathy appears automatic. On the other hand, it shifts, diminishing and expanding with features of your situation. How can we square these two accounts? Well, that's what I've been thinking about and asking myself a lot these days. And I feel as though I've arrived, at least preliminarily, at an answer, which is that you can pretty much powerfully resolve the tension between those narratives if you let go of some assumptions about how empathy works. And in particular, the idea that empathy is out of our control. Lately, I've enjoyed thinking about empathy not as something that happens to us, but rather as a choice that we make constantly, even if we're not aware we're making it. I feel like we often make an implicit or explicit decision as to whether we want to engage with someone's emotions or not based on the motives we might have for doing so. 
So let me try to unpack this. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're watching TV and you learn that the next thing coming on the station that you're watching is a telethon meant to raise awareness of leukemia. And this will include kids who are suffering from leukemia telling their story. I bet you would predict, and I bet you'd be right, that watching this telethon would cause lots of empathy to bubble up within you. So the question is, do you stick to the channel and watch it, or do you turn away? Well, I think there are lots of motives you might have for watching. For one, you might be curious about the plight of folks living with leukemia. You might even feel that it's your moral responsibility to find out more about this group. You might also imagine that you'll be inspired to donate money to this cause and that that would make you feel good as though you're living in accordance with your, virtue, with, with your virtues and principles. There might also be reasons that you don't want to watch this telethon. For one, it might hurt. It would probably be heart-wrenching to hear these stories. It might also make you experience guilt, especially if after watching this, you choose not to donate. Right? If you're strapped for cash, you might feel as though you're placed in a double bind where you have to choose between your wallet on the one hand and your conscience on the other hand. And those might be situations you want to avoid. And one way to help you avoid those situations would be by avoiding empathy in the first place. So I call these motives, respectively, uh, empathic approach motives and empathic avoidance motives, sort of people's drives that push them towards and away from other people's emotions and connecting with those emotions. I feel like people carry those motives out in lots of different ways. So for instance, if I don't want to empathize with you, one strategy is I can just avoid you altogether. And people often avoid situations that they think will inspire empathy in them. I can also simply not pay attention to your emotions or decide through some appraisal process that your emotions are not important, or at least less important than my own. So over the last couple of years, I've gathered lots of evidence in support of a motivated view of empathy. Um, so for instance, when it comes to avoiding empathy, we can go to the example I just mentioned. You might be worried that empathy will cause you to feel guilty or morally obliged to part with some of your money. It might be a costly emotion. So it turns out that Dan Batson, uh, about 20 years ago, ran a beautiful study in which he demonstrated this in a really simple experiment. He told some people that they'd have a chance to donate to a homeless person, and he told other people that they'd have no such opportunity. He then asked people which of two appeals they wanted to hear. One very objective story about this person's life, and another that was really emotionally evocative. Well, it turns out that people who thought they'd have a chance to donate tended to choose the emotionally neutral version of the story, consistent with the idea that they want to avoid experiencing empathy. Another reason you might not want to experience empathy is if you're in the position where you have to harm somebody. So let's say that you're a linebacker, for instance, and you have to d deliver a vicious tackle to a running back. It probably would behoove you to not feel everything that that person is feeling and think a lot about their emotions or the pain you're causing them. This happens in much darker contexts, of course. In war, soldiers are explicitly encouraged to dehumanize their enemy, likely to make it less guilt-inducing when they have to, uh, to harm those people. This is what my colleague Al Bandura would call moral disengagement. And Al and his colleagues a few years ago demonstrated this in a very interesting and 
to me troubling way, they found that uh, prison guards and especially executioners tended to, to downplay the suffering of death row inmates, consistent with their motive to do so uh, and avoid guilt at their, at their own actions. Like you see this all the time in modern warfare. Drone strikes, for instance, are a great way to avoid empathizing with the targets of an attack. Like I said, people are not just motivated to avoid empathy. There's lots of evidence that people approach empathy as well. So one example of this is loneliness. People who are lonely feel a deep desire to connect with others. And in many cases, they do so by ramping up their empathy and focusing more on other people's minds and experiences. So John Maynard and Adam Waits and others have demonstrated that if you induce someone to be lonely, they'll pay more attention to other people's minds, connect more with their emotions, and they'll even pay attention to minds that are not there. For instance, anthropomorphizing objects like robots. I think we see this to an extreme degree in the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks is so lonely that he anthropomorphizes and empathizes with a volleyball, Wilson, right? And sort of thinks a lot and interacts a lot with a mind that he imagines to be there that is actually not. Another reason you might want to empathize is when it's socially desirable to do so. So if you learn that people around you really value empathy, well then you might be encouraged to experience empathy yourself. One of my favorite studies on this works over the concept of gender roles in empathy. So uh, Thomas and Mayo, these psychologists, uh, probably seven or eight years ago, ran a study in which they first started out by demonstrating that on a standard empathy test, heterosexual men fared a little bit worse than women. So this, of course, plays into the stereotype that women are more empathic than men. But the reason that I like this study so much is because Thomas and Mayo demonstrated that this is not a constitutional difference in the abilities of men and women, but probably instead represents a difference in their motivation. How do they demonstrate this? Through a really clever technique in a second study, these scientists convinced again, heterosexual men, that women find sensitive guys really attractive. And it turns out that this motivation eliminated the gender gap in empathy performance. So straight men who believed that being empathic would make them attractive were, became more empathic. Their, their empathy increased. Again, consistent with this motivated account of people choosing empathy or choosing to not empathize depending on their goals in a given situation. So what is empathy and where does it come from in our intellectual landscape? Uh, oddly enough, empathy, a term generated by uh, a German art philosopher, an aesthetic philosopher, uh, used to describe, uh, I think the term in German, and I'll butcher it, is Einfühlung, which is sort of uh, when you feel yourself into an art object. So this is Theodore Lips who believed that uh, and this is going, following Robert Vischer, who is another uh, aesthetic philosopher. They both believe that the way that we make contact with art is not by assessing its qualities in an objective sense, but rather by, again, feeling into it, by sort of projecting ourselves emotionally into a work. That was translated into English, what, 105 years ago by Titchener, uh, into the word empathy now. It's funny, if you look at Google, Google Ngram, right, and you look at the use of the term empathy, it feels like it's got a hydraulic relationship with another word, sympathy. 
sympathy used to be much more popular and has declined in popularity, and empathy has risen in popularity at the same time. And I think it's a really meaningful distinction between these two things because, to my mind, sympathy is a more detached form of pity that you might have for someone suffering, whereas empathy requires a lot more emotional investment. I think empathy is really expensive psychologically. It costs a lot to empathize with someone, and there are many cases in which you might not want to do so. So scarcity is one thing that drives empathy down. Stress is another. So I think this is why you know, they, they say that virtues are easier to abide on a full stomach. I think empathy is as well. If you are worried about survival and the well-being of yourself and your closest kin, your family, I think it's much harder to extend the circumference or diameter of your empathy to larger social groups. I think Steve Pinker talks about this in The Better Angels of Our Nature, the way that sort of we've, and Peter Singer also, of course, talks about this in his expanding circle, the idea that maybe we can sort of, again, expand the diameter of our concern for others, and maybe we have over the last decades. But I think that even within one person's life, within a moment in time, there are many factors that might drive you to feel empathy or not. So the costs of empathy include when it's painful, but also the responsibility that it places on people, right? I mean, if you empathize with someone, it's really hard to compete with them. If you empathize with non-human animals, it's really difficult to consume them. There's, again, a moral responsibility that comes with uh, an experience of empathy, especially if you want to continue being an emotionally authentic person. It does seem as though the social norms surrounding empathy have shifted. And I think that's really important because if you view empathy not as a fixed quality of who we are, something that just happens automatically, but instead view it as something that we choose, well then the cultural landscape should shape our individual emotional landscapes. I feel like we live in a more empathy positive time than the past. People really value sort of warmth towards others and care for others as part of what it means to be a good person, now more than ever. And I think that actually can make big changes in the way that people experience empathy. One of my friends and colleagues, Eric Nook and I, and, and our colleagues ran a study recently where we saw whether conformity can generate empathy in people. If you believe that others around you value empathy, are you more likely to value it yourself? And we found that indeed people were. So if we convinced folks that their peers experienced lots of empathy, then our participants themselves reported more empathy and acted more kindly towards strangers, even if those strangers belonged to stigmatized outgroups. Right? So we think that the, a changing tide in our culture can change the way that people choose to engage with empathy themselves. Obama is probably the most empathy focused president that, that I've seen, at least the guy who uses the term the most out of presidents in my lifetime, he often talks about there being an empathy deficit and says that one of the ways that we need to improve our society and the fabric of our society is by increasing our empathy. I bet there are a lot of people who would disagree with that as a policy for running a state. Uh, in fact, there are lots of psychologists who would disagree with it, but there are certainly many politicians who disagree with it. You saw this when Obama appointed Sotomayor as a Supreme Court justice and said, 
you know, this is a woman who has great empathy for the plight of many people. Well, that statement was vilified. I mean, he was pilloried for saying that, and people felt as though empathy is one of the worst features that you could select for when thinking about policy, when thinking about law, when thinking about government, because empathy is an emotion and subject to all sorts of irrational biases. Justice should be blind and presumably emotionally neutral. Um, and you actually see this a lot in, some, in a movement that's taken hold recently. So um, Paul Bloom and a set of other psychologists have made what I think is a really great and super interesting case that empathy is overrated, uh, especially as a moral compass. Their view is that, is that empathy generates nice and kind and moral behaviors, but in fundamentally skewed ways. For instance, again, only towards members of your own group, not in ways that maximize well-being across the largest number of people. So on this account, empathy is kind of like a dumb, inflexible, emotional engine for driving moral behavior. And if you really want to do the right thing, you should focus on sort of more objective principles to guide uh, your decision making. I think that's a really great argument. It's not one that I agree with. I think it, it follows from somewhat of an incomplete view of what empathy is, right? I mean, if you believe that empathy is automatic and either just happens to you or doesn't, then sure, the biases that characterize empathy are inescapable and will always uh, govern empathic decision-making. But if you instead view empathy as something that people can control, then I think people can control their empathy to make it align more with their values and, again, to broaden their concern. I think that empathy has a long tradition in lots of different fields. I mean, in philosophy, you've got Edith Stein, for instance, um, a nun who wrote beautifully about empathy. Um, also, Martin Buber, uh, I and Thou, is a beautiful book about how people connect with each other and share each other's experience. Within psychology, the study of empathy has an equally long history and one that's got a lot of players in it. I mean, I would say, for my money, the most powerful research on empathy in the 20th century comes from Dan Batson. He's, for decades, demonstrated the power of emotional connection to drive people to helping each other. So again, thinking about empathy as, a, as an engine for promoting cooperation and altruism. The APA, of course, uh, recently discovered that uh, a set of psychologists had aided and abetted in a program of enhanced interrogation. Hugely controversial and enormously problematic. I think it's so horrific to think about psychology being used in this way, but you can imagine how that works. I mentioned earlier that individuals with psychopathy can understand what people feel, but they use that understanding not to improve other people's states, but sometimes to worsen their states. I mean, in a perverse way, the torturer needs to engage with at least some forms of empathy in order to do their job uh, effectively. They need to know how to push someone's buttons, how to generate as much distress as they can. I think this is the dark side of empathy, and I think there really is a dark side of empathy, especially when you experience one piece of empathy without the others. And so understanding someone, having emotional intelligence, might just make you a better manipulator if you are so inclined. So I think viewing 
empathy as a choice helps us understand the basic nature of empathy, why and when people empathize and why and when they don't. But I think it is more powerful than that because I think it can also help us address what Mina Chikara and I have called empathic failures, cases in which people don't empathize and that generates some problem down the line. So I mentioned this already with respect to intergroup conflicts, but empathic failures happen in lots of other settings. So for instance, when adolescents bully each other or when physicians fail to emotionally connect or understand the suffering of their patients, those are empathic failures. There are lots of interventionists doing really hard and important work to try to mitigate the effects of empathic failures. Uh, this, this type of intervention tends to take on one of two flavors, either teaching people empathic skills, like how to recognize other people's emotions well, or giving them opportunities to empathize. For instance, taking groups of people who are in conflict and having them spend time together. I think this is a great approach, but viewing empathy as a motivated phenomenon encourages us to take another approach as well. Not just teaching people how to empathize, but getting them to want to empathize in the first place, right? So not just training skills, but also building motives in people to empathize. And so that is what my lab has been up to for the last couple of years. We've been generating and testing a whole bunch of social psychological nudges that might encourage people to want to empathize. And we're really excited to bring this into a bunch of spheres, including testing whether we can reduce bullying in adolescents and help physicians, again, be more effective in treating their patients. There is huge disparities in how people feel about empathy and what they think it is, depending on where they fall on political and social landscapes, right? So I think that both more conservative and more liberal people can be extremely empathic or very unempathic. The question is, empathy for whom? I think that folks on the right end of the political spectrum tend to be more empathic with members of their group. They're oriented towards tradition and towards establishing connections with people who are part of those traditions. I think that the, at least the cultural moray for progressives is to be more indiscriminate and to value in some egalitarian way the emotions of everybody. Uh, I think also there are shifting cultural norms surrounding who should be empathic and who should not be empathic. So men and women, for instance, are stereotyped into roles that drive them towards being more and less empathic respectively. I wonder whether that is a holdover from previous generations. I, I, to my mind, these kind of constructions of empathy as a Republican or a Democratic thing or a male or a female thing are historical more than they're embedded in the structure of who we are. And one of the things that's curious to me is how empathy changes over time. So a very famous and quite controversial study that came out a few years ago by Sarah Conrath and her colleagues at Michigan found that college students report being much less empathic now than they did 30 years ago. And that there is a drop-off in empathy that's pretty steady across that 30-year period, but especially pronounced in the last 10 years. People have jumped on the idea that this has to do with electronic forms of communication, people 
losing out on face-to-face contact in favor of uh, contact that's mediated by some, uh, some electronic device. Okay, I think that's an interesting assertion. To my mind, it's an easy conclusion to draw. I would be just as likely to believe that people are not necessarily more or less empathic, but rather that they feel that empathy is something different and they might not be, uh, they might not be as drawn to empathy as a construct. They might not feel that it's as desirable as it was 30 years ago. This, of course, is interesting because 30 years ago is the middle of the 80s, which people probably don't consider the most empathic decade on record. But nonetheless, I think that when we see changes in people's empathic experience across cultural lines, across time, across gender, it might reflect not only who people are, but who they want to be. I, I mean, my hope for, for this work, for this line of thinking, is that it can teach people about empathy, but also teach people how to work with their own empathy. I, mean, I, I feel like this is one of those cases where education and intervention kind of overlap and are the same thing. I feel like if you believe that you can harness your empathy and make choices about when to experience it and when not to, it adds a layer of responsibility to you to choose how to engage with other people. If you feel like you're powerless to control your empathy, well then you might just be satisfied with whatever biases and limits you have on it. You might be okay with not caring about someone just because they're different from you. If you just accept that as a part of who you are and, and a limit on your emotional life. I want people to not feel safe empathizing in the way that they always have. I want them to understand that they're doing something deliberate when they connect with someone, and I want them to own that responsibility. Um, I think it's really easy to overdose on empathy, and empathy can be a really dangerous thing for an individual's well-being. It can cause you to burn out. There's something known as compassion fatigue for hospice nurses and physicians working in hospices. These are people who really overload themselves on other people's suffering to the point that they can't take care of themselves anymore. I think there are many cases in which empathy is really great for an individual's well-being and makes you feel more connected to other people. There are other cases in which it exhausts you. The idea that you can control empathy is not just meant so that everyone can turn their empathy up to 11 all the time. I think it's just as important to know when to turn down one's empathy especially if you need to engage in self-care, right? If you need to take care of yourself, sometimes it's important to not empathize. My wife is a therapist, and she says, you know, the last thing that any of her patients need if they're depressed is for her to be depressed as well. So she needs to modulate her empathy online in order to be able to guide those people towards something that will help them, not just showing them that she feels the same thing as them, but being a source of comfort for them. And that requires knowing not just how to turn up empathy, but also how to turn it down sometimes. There are cases in which people can use other people's empathy to take advantage of them or manipulate them. Advertisers do this all the time. Politicians do this all the time. People try to narrativize their ideas and turn them into stories about people's suffering so that you will feel more connected with them. Any ad for Save the Children starts with an example of a child who's in horrible, dire straits, and the only way that this child will survive is if you help them. I mean, this is explicitly meant to tug on people's heartstrings, 
in a very particular way. I don't think that empathy is a necessarily always a morally positive or negative thing. I think it's somewhat value neutral and it's really in the way that you use it.